Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Good morning. Nice music. It's good to worship together, isn't it? Good reading of the scripture. Thank you, Ann. It's good to see so many of you back. Good for us to be here. In the book Condi, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice tells the story of an attempt on the part of Russian President Vladimir Putin to physically intimidate her. I had the privilege of hearing her tell the story live at a leadership conference some years back. As America's top diplomat, she had been sent by President Bush to the Kremlin to deliver a specific message that, he, uh, that should he continue to pursue a certain course of action, President Bush and the United States would consider it in an unfavorable light. After delivering the message, Rice said, that Putin became visibly upset. He stood up, walked over to where she sat, standing almost right over her, and glowered down at her, a very intimidating posture. 
Nothing like that had ever happened to her before. So she'd never thought about how she'd respond to that kind of action. But instinctively, she said, I just stood up. Now, Putin is not a tall man. He's about five foot six. Condoleezza Rice said, in heels, I'm 5'11 easy. And that day, I was in heels. <laughs> there they were, eyeball to eyeball. Putin now actually looking up at this tall American black woman, and neither one of them said a word. After a few moments, Rice said, Putin backed off, sat back down, and the conversation continued. It has not been easy for black people to succeed in a white-dominated culture, nor for women to succeed in a male-dominated culture. These discrimination barriers are not broken down quickly or easily in our society at large. Unfortunately, the church has not been immune to this kind of discrimination throughout its history. As one writer quipped, the most compelling proof for the existence of God might be the fact that the Christian faith has survived 20 centuries of abuse heaped upon it by the church. But it has survived because God is patient and gracious and persistent and because his Holy Spirit has promised to soften and transform our hearts and shape our understandings and help us to grow in faith. And he continues to call his people forward toward a more beautiful understanding of truth, toward a brighter future back to the ideal that will bring the most blessing to his people. Last week I shared with you my personal story in coming to terms with women in leadership functions within the church. I had to figure that out for myself. Does the Bible permit it or does the Bible forbid it? As you well know, good people who follow Jesus with honest hearts see it differently. But I would wager that most of us haven't spent a lot of time wrestling with these particular scriptures and, and, uh, to, and to understand why we believe as we do. Most of us, because the issue is not central to our lives, have probably had our opinions formed by the traditions of our own upbringing or a surface reading of the material. This morning, it's my desire to share with you a bit, of a bit of why, after having determined for myself where I stand, why I believe the Bible in no way limits the full participation by both men and women to all ministry functions within God's church. It's appropriate for us to think about that together, about this now, because you folk have recently chosen to continue the employment of a woman as one of the pastors. Since it's the third Sabbath of the month, we're having children's church across the breezeway, so we will not finish this morning, but we will wrap it up next week. Also next week, I will give you a copy of this book, uh, Women and Ordination, Biblical, Historical, and, Biblical and Historical Studies. It's by the scholars in the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary. 
The Washington Conference gave one of these books to all the pastors in our conference four years ago. I asked them that when they were done handing them out, could I have all the extra ones? Because I thought that one day I might have occasion to share them with you, and they gave them to me. So I have about 20 of them in my room, and uh, I will give you a copy. They it, there are some very excellent articles in here. If you want to think about this subject in depth, just ask me next week. I'll give you one. It's a nice book. It's about 400 pages, or you can buy it on Amazon for 25 bucks. But I'm offering you a sweeter deal, all right? If you agree to read at least one article, that's all you have to do. And some of them are very fascinating. You don't have to be a theologian to understand what they're saying. They are written, the articles, for lay people, which is why I understand them, okay? The article by Joanne Davidson, in which she surveys women in the Old Testament, is worth the price of the whole book, but you're getting it for free, so it's just wonderfully written. You will learn things that you never knew. I will also give you a link next week where you can download a PDF of every paper uh, presented by the theology, uh, the theology of Ordination Commission, articles both pro and against, all right? You can read those for yourself. You can get them for free. So let's get started this morning. The basic underlying principle we'll be working from this morning is the same statement that Paul, uh, that we had last week that Paul made to the church in, in Galatia. And uh, Beth read it for us again this morning. Paul says that in God's new community, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is Paul's clarion call to the New Testament church, announcing that any kind of human-devised hierarchies and authority structures based on race, economic class, or gender have no place within the community of believers who are God's chosen people. Paul is very specific here in naming these three barriers which people have erected to damage God's original plan by making one group subordinate to another group. Race, economic class, gender. Last week we thought about how God began to break down the racial barrier with Peter's dream and subsequent visit to the Roman household belonging to Cornelius. This morning we'll think specifically about the gender barrier and maybe the best way to start out here is simply to look at one of the New Testament texts that restrict women. There are several of them, but we'll read 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 11 and 12. Paul writes, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. On the surface of it, this statement seems pretty easy to understand, does it not? It's pretty black and white. We just take the simple meaning of it, just like it reads. Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. And so what we do, we tend to lift this out of its context, make it float untethered in space, treat it like a universal principle applicable to all men and all women and every church. But when we do that, there are a couple of serious problems that we run into. 
First of all, the simple meaning of what Paul says here won't square with what he says in other places. For example, the 16th chapter of Romans in verse 1. Now, the book of Romans, the first 15 chapters, is considered by many people to be the most magnificent treatise of the Christian faith ever produced and here in chapter 16, he brings his book to a close by sending personal greetings to good friends and co-workers. The first person he names in chapter 16 is Phoebe. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Chantria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a great help to many people, including me. First of all, notice that Paul says Phoebe is a servant of the church in Chantria. The word servant there can be a little bit of a mistranslation. It is in my Bible because we tend to think of a servant as like a helper or an assistant, or something like that. And if Paul would have wanted to indicate that Phoebe was that kind of helper, he could have used the common Greek word doulos, which means a bondservant. Paul calls himself a bondservant to Jesus Christ in the first chapter of Romans. Or he could have used the word biathos, which is a common word that means an assistant, okay? A helper, somebody who renders aid, but he does not. He uses the word diakonos in the masculine gender, by the way, the feminine will not show up for another three centuries, and it's the word that we translate as deacon. Paul says that she is the deacon of the church of Chantria. A deacon in the biblical sense is a servant leader. She is the first deacon mentioned in the New Testament. It is exactly the same word that Paul uses in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where he is giving the qualifications of elders and deacons in the church. But there's more. Paul also says she has been a great help. And we get the idea that she's a kind of an, an assistant. Even though she may be a pretty important assistant, she's still just a helper, a supporter. But Paul does not use the common word that means helper or supporter. He, he uses the word prostatus. And that is a very interesting word. It's not a common word in the New Testament. And it means the one who stands in front of. The one who stands in front of. It's the word he uses in Romans 12 where he says, if your spiritual gift is to lead, prostatus, then do it diligently. So you see now how the English translation, at least in the New International Version, tends to downplay the idea that Phoebe was a leader in her church. And I'll tell you why it tends to downplay that next week when we get to the history of this. But Phoebe was a leader she was the deacon of the church, the one who stood in front of or before the people. And Paul says that she has been a prostatus, a leader, not only to many people, but even to him, he says. In other words, Paul says there have been times when Phoebe exercised her leadership authority even over him. But there's even more. 
Careful study has led many scholars to conclude that Phoebe was the one that Paul selected to carry his letter to the Roman church. Paul is introducing her here as the letter bearer to the congregation in Rome. In that capacity, she would have been the one to stand before them and read it to the congregation and also to answer their questions about it or explain anything that they might want to question. In other words, to teach it. She was Paul's emissary. And one scholar has commented, he says, Phoebe carried under the folds of her robe the whole future of Christian theology. So if the principle is that women are always to be silent in the church, always under the authority of a man, what do we do with Phoebe? Or look at verse 3. Paul says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ. They risked their lives for me. The first thing to notice is that Priscilla's name comes before her husband's name, which is kind of odd, you would think. If all women were supposed to be subordinated to all men, wouldn't it have been better to say Aquila and Priscilla? But Paul doesn't. But also notice what Priscilla does. In addition to living courageously, that is, in addition to risking her life, watch this. Acts 18 tells the story of Apollos. Apollos was a Jew with a really good knowledge of Scripture. He was a really powerful teacher who came to the church in Ephesus to teach, but he didn't know about baptism. He had only heard about the baptism of John. He's teaching about Jesus, but he doesn't know anything about where Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples and baptize them. So Priscilla and her husband give Apollos a little Bible study. Luke writes, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. There she is, named first again. And it says, they, plural pronoun, both she and her husband taught him about Jesus more adequately. If it's a universal principle that a woman cannot teach a man, then it should have said, Aquila and Priscilla invited him to their house, and Aquila taught him the way of God. But it does not. Priscilla was right there with him a teacher of one of the great speakers in the early Christian church. Or look at Romans 16, verse 7. Paul writes, Greet Andronicus and Junius. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Notice here, the NIV, which is the Bible that I normally use, says, Greet Junius. Junius is the masculine gender. Do you know why? Because in 1927 or so, the translators of the Greek changed the gender from female to male. Before that time, virtually every Bible used the word junia, which is feminine. If you're reading the King James this morning, it will say junia, feminine. The name means youthful. It comes from Juno, the sun goddess. Now, in the oldest manuscripts... And the oldest manuscripts are generally the most reliable manuscripts. In the oldest ones, it's not possible to distinguish whether it's Junia or Junius. 
feminine or masculine, because the oldest known manuscripts were written in all capital letters. And when the word is written in all caps, there's no difference between the masculine and the feminine form of the word. You just can't tell. So how do you figure it out? Well, you ask, how about the manuscripts which were not written in all caps? Those manuscripts didn't appear until about the seventh century or so. They were later. But in every single one of them, it is always translated as junia, feminine. Every single one. None of them have a masculine junius. Then you could also ask, well, how did the early church writers understand it? All right? People like Origen and John Chrysostom and Peter Abelard, how, did they understand it to be male or female? And among the writers of the early church from the year 200 AD all the way to about 1200 or so, they all understood Junia to be feminine, almost every single one of them. And finally, you could say, well, in the wider culture, outside the church, in everyday Roman life, how many times do we find the masculine version of this name? How many guys have we found who were named Junius? And the answer is exactly zero. Junia was a girl's name in that culture. We have hundreds of examples of girls named Junia. We have not a single instance anywhere in the world, within the church or outside of it, of a guy named Junius. He just doesn't exist. And that kind of makes sense when you think about it. I mean, what guy wants to be known forever as youthful? It's kind of like, you know, Johnny Cash and a boy named Sue. How do you do? My name is Sue. So the overwhelming evidence here is that Junia was indeed a girl. And Paul is saying, greet her for me. She is an outstanding apostle. Now, if women are forbidden to lead or to teach, what do you do with these women? If we just take the simple meaning of what Paul says to Timothy about not permitting a woman to teach or to lead or remaining silent, then why does Paul seem to be so okay with it in Romans? Why doesn't he write, and by the way, why do you permit Phoebe to lead? I don't. And why do you let Prissa teach men? I don't. Clearly, Paul was either a hypocrite or there has to be another way of understanding what Paul is talking about when he writes to Timothy. I opt for the second one. Now, it seems that most of the differences of understanding about what the Bible permits and forbids regarding gender roles all boils down to one underlying principle. If you cut to the chase here, most of it comes down to this. What was God's intention for this headship submission thing from the very beginning? Those who believe that the Bible teaches some form of submission for women in the church will almost all agree that from the very beginning, before the fall in Eden, God created females with a role distinction requiring submission to males. So Genesis 1 and 2 becomes the critical passage. It's the lens 
through which we view these New Testament prohibitions, okay? Remember now, we have seen there is precedence for this, going back to the beginning to try to, uh, to interpret, because just two weeks ago we considered briefly the story of Jesus and the question of divorce. One day some teachers come up to Jesus, and Matthew says they were trying to test him. They wanted him to take sides in a theological controversy. Divorce is a tough thing. It's never a good thing. Divorce always brings with it a lot of pain. So these teachers come up to Jesus, and this is what they ask him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And you remember, there were two schools of thought on this in the days of Jesus. Two well-respected rabbis taught two very different yokes when it comes to divorce. Rabbi Hillel, you remember him? Well, Hillel tended to advocate a fairly loose interpretation of Scripture, and Jesus often sided with Rabbi Hillel. Hillel allowed divorce for even trivial reasons. Hillel based his teaching, his yoke, on what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy, the 24th chapter. Moses wrote that there might be all kinds of reasons for divorce. He doesn't name them there. He only says that if a husband discovers some indecency in his wife, he can send her away. So Rabbi Hillel taught his yoke of divorce based on what Moses said in Deuteronomy 24. But Jesus didn't side with Hillel on that day. He sided with another great rabbi named Shammai, who taught that divorce is always wrong except for unfaithfulness. Shammai taught a very strict yoke when it comes to divorce. The bar was very high. And on that issue, Jesus said, in effect, I am siding with Shammai. But Jesus gave the reason for why he said that. In answering his questioners, Jesus says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made the male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus says, how was it at the beginning, fellas? Because if you understand how it was when God first made people, then you'll have a pretty good idea of how it really ought to be now. Well, so how come Moses commanded divorce, they asked. It's a good question. If we're supposed to be striving for the creation ideal, why would Moses lower the standard? Here's what Jesus said. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Because of hard hearts, Jesus says. Hard hearts are what keep us from living God's ideals. Think about that. A hard heart does not necessarily mean a mean heart. We might get the idea that when Jesus talks about a hard-hearted person here, he's talking about a mean-hearted person, but that's not necessarily so. A hard heart is a heart that is difficult for truth to penetrate. 
It's a heart that is impervious to a higher ideal. It is a heart that is stuck in the old, fallen way of thinking. That's a hard heart. Here, Jesus points back to the creation ideal. And for that, we need soft hearts. Well, how do we get soft hearts? How do we get soft hearts? The Holy Spirit has to come. The Holy Spirit must come. You can't soften it by yourself. You must have the Spirit. And so, on this question regarding female submission, back to Genesis, back to the creation ideal, we will go. In the beginning, God speaks and the whole world comes to be. Beginning with broad strokes and cosmic vistas, he moves toward intricacy and detail and complexity. And all through the process, like a cadence, come the words, And God said, and it was so. Light came into being, and then sky and seas, and then dry land, followed by vegetation, the sun, moon, stars, then birds and fish, and then land animals. And throughout the story, like a counter cadence, come the words, And God saw that it was good. Seven times. And then in verse 26, there comes a break in the cadence. A new thing is about to happen. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You look at verse 27 for a moment and notice the play and counterplay of singular and plural in the way this is written. It's very poetic. God decides to make man singular, but he ends up making them plural. He creates man in his own image, but he makes them male and female, plural. Now, the image of God has to do with who God is. And God is a unity of oneness made up of a community of three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. A unity of one made of a community of three. And all three of these agencies were involved in the creative act of making human beings, according to verse 26, because God said, let us, plural, make man in our image, plural. So whatever else might be true regarding the image of God, we know that to be in the image of God, this new creature that God is about to make must also be a community of oneness. And so he makes them, male and female. And then in verse 28, it says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Notice carefully here. In the very beginning, God establishes some authority structures here, 
some hierarchy. What is it? Man is to rule over the creation. In fact, he says it twice in verses 26 and in verse 28, which means it's significant. It is said twice because authority and lines of authority are very important, are they not? But notice in verse 28, God gave both of them the mandate to multiply and reproduce, and both of them were given the mandate to rule the earth. Both the man and the woman were to exercise the family function and the rulership function together. Do you see that? Adam was not told to rule over the earth and Eve to, to tend the family. They were both given the twin mandates together. And the passage comes to a conclusion in verse 31. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, a sixth day. And thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Now a question. So far in the creation account, is there any hint, any mention of an authority structure between the male and the female? There is none whatsoever. The only authority structures are God over the humans, both male and female, and the humans, both male and female, over the rest of creation. Since authority is a really big deal, and since God mentions the structure of human authority over the creation twice, you would think that if there was supposed to be any structural authority of the male over the female at this point, God would have said so. He would have told us. He does not. In fact, no Bible writer, not Moses, not Paul, not even Ellen White, teaches the creation headship of man over the woman. It is simply not there. Nor has something like this ever been accepted in the history of the Adventist church. So let's sum up what we have from Genesis 1, okay? We've got an equal pairing of male and female that together reflect the image of God. There is no hint of, of uh, functional superiority or he headship submission. Both are the result of God's creative act. Number two, both equally share in the blessings and the responsibilities of procreation. Number three, both participate fully in the dominion over the earth and its creatures. That's what we have in Genesis 1. Now we'll move on to Genesis chapter 2, and we'll see if we can discover any evidence for headship or submission there. Genesis 2 is primarily a retelling and an expansion of the story of verses 26 and 27 of Genesis 1, the creation of the human beings. It expands that. The story is retold. It's fleshed out in detail. Verse 7 the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Did you notice the verb change from chapter 1? In chapter 1, everything was spoken into existence. God said, and it was so. This is different. God doesn't just speak. He formed the man. This is intimate. This is God down on his hands and knees, 
forming man from the mud of the ground and then waking him with a kiss almost. And then he says to the man, look what I made for you. And he puts him in that pristine garden paradise filled with delightful trees and watered by wonderful rivers. And he explains to him about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is the tool by which he will be able to exercise his power of choice and demonstrate loyalty to his good maker. And then comes the verse that doesn't seem to fit. The Lord God said, it is not good. Everything up to that point had been very good. It had been perfect. Nobody has done anything wrong yet. No disobedience. No sin has crept in. But it's as if God says, there's something not quite right here. It's not good for the man to be alone. Why wasn't it good? Because God is not alone, and human beings are made in his image. As long as Adam was alone, by himself, solitary, he was not in God's image. Now, God was not taken by surprise here. He didn't say, "Uh uh-oh, I think I missed something. I missed some parts. He already knew what he was going to do. He says, I will make a helper suitable for him. But God doesn't make a helper. Instead, he organizes an animal parade. That's what comes next. God brings all these fascinating creatures that he's spoken into being. He brings them all to the man, and the man gets to name them. But in the process of naming them, the man notices that all all the animals come in pairs. Pairs that correspond to one another. And he realizes, as if for the first time, that he doesn't have a correspondence, a mate. They've all got dates, and he doesn't. He's alone. So verse 20 says, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So, what will God do? So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Wouldn't you have loved to be there to witness that moment, to be a fly on the tree in the Garden of Eden and see the look on Adam's face when he opened his eyes and caught his first glimpse of this magnificent, gorgeous new creature who corresponds to him? Imagine that. The man takes one wide-eyed look And what does he say? Whoa, man, whoa, man, whoa, man, woman. That's a joke. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And then comes the verse that Jesus quoted and Paul quoted. It is one of the most quoted of any Old Testament verses, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And then the creation account finishes with verse 25. That's the X-rated verse. It says that the man and his wife were both naked, 
but they felt no shame. Now here's where people will say, there it is, all right? There is the place where it shows from the very beginning in the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, before sin, where it shows that man was created to be superior to the woman, that he made him to be the head of things, and the woman is made to be submissive. And I have to respond and say, I'm sorry, but I just don't see it there. I think that to come to that conclusion, you have to read into the story the conclusion you want to get from it. And I'm also sorry that we're about out of time, so in just a few more minutes we're going to have to stop, and you're no doubt relieved that we're going to have to stop. But before we do, let me just give you a preview of what we'll think about next week. One of the reasons, one of the reasons, and there are five, but one reason that people say this story teaches male headship is because Adam was created first. He came first, so he is superior. And even Paul seems to agree with this in his instructions where he writes to Timothy. He says Adam was created first. Let's think about that. All through the creation story, things have been moving from amazing to more amazing. Moving from amazing and good to more amazing and even better, right? From air to water to dry land, to plants, to fish and birds, to animals, and finally, to human beings. Plants are more, are more amazing than dirt, are they not? My wife will tell you that's the case. Animals are more amazing than plants. An African lion is certainly more amazing than an African violet. Human beings are more amazing than mice and dogs and cats most of the time. So the pattern of the whole story is from good to very good. Why, at the very end, would the story suddenly go from very good to a little less good? From superior to a little bit inferior? If you argue that Adam is superior because he was made before Eve, it just doesn't make sense. If anything, creation order should teach us that the woman was superior to the man. She was the crowning act, the final revision, the epitome of God's creative prowess, the zenith of perfection. No amens from any female in here now. Just let the females keep silent in the church on this but in fact, did you know that there are some Jewish theologians who teach exactly that, exactly that? They say the woman was created last and therefore she is the superior gender. And to bolster their case, they say that of the two genders, only the woman has the godlike ability to produce another living human being. Only women can do that, regardless of what the new so-called gender studies professors claim. Men simply cannot. In fact, the superiority of the female is even hinted at in verse 24. Look at this. This is fascinating. At the end of the story of how God made the first people, he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Question. Who is doing the moving in this verse? Is it the man or is it the woman? It's the man, 
Is it not? He moves from his father and mother and moves toward his wife. The woman remains stable. You realize how countercultural that is? We all know that people of inferior status are the ones who move toward people of superior status, not the other way around. If you foul up, you get called to the boss's office. He doesn't come visit you, mostly. I mean, the less important person is always summoned by the more important person. And yet here, God says, the man leaves his household and moves toward his wife. So if Genesis 2 teaches anything at all about headship and submission, which it does not, but if it did, it teaches that women should have the headship over men and men should submit. But that's not the intent of the passage. Here's the bottom line regarding who was made first. The structure of Genesis 2 does not flow from superiority to inferiority. It flows from incompleteness to completion. It moves toward finale. And check this out. If you could read Hebrew now, you would find that the author uses the exact same number of words to describe God making woman as he does man. The exact same number of words. The emphasis is on precise balance. The scale is not tipped even slightly one way or the other. The intention of the author is to emphasize the flow from incomplete to complete, not from superior to inferior. And that makes sense. If you want to argue from creation order, well, Adam was made from the dirt. Dirt was made first. Will you say that Adam is inferior to dirt since dirt was made first? How many of you would argue that? No, nobody. Of course not. Nobody would argue that. And since we have unanimity about that, that is exactly where we will stop for today. There are four more claims made from this story to show women were created to be subordinated to men. Next week, we'll take a look at each one of those, and then we'll look at what happened in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3. So freeze frame. The story will be continued next week.